<clears throat> the book of Matthew chapter 28. And we'll again read these <clears throat> last several verses here. These last five verses in this book, which is really <clears throat> the apex of where Matthew is heading. We have the genesis of Christ in Matthew chapter 1. And we have, Behold, He is with us always, even to the end of the age, at the end of the book. Matthew chapter 28, verse 16. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. And when they saw Him, they worshipped Him. But some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age." We took a look this morning at this aspect of going to make disciples. And we saw, first of all, that the going here is purposeful. It's not just as you go, but be going to make disciples. That that is really the aim and the purpose of what we are doing. And then we saw this morning that in direct context that this passage is referring to the apostles, the sent ones that Christ is speaking to. He's speaking to these 11 men and that those apostles are unique. Even in Acts chapter 1 verses 1 through 8, it's very explicit that those words were given to the apostles. And in a sense, these apostles did, in their day, fulfill this commission. They actually went into all the nations, all the nations that they knew of at that time, and presented the gospel of Jesus Christ, a gospel that gives birth to disciples. That when that gospel is given, and that gospel is rightly understood, It produces follower learners of the Savior. And we took a look at one of the passages this morning. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. And do what? Learn of me. For I am meek and lowly of heart. And God does promise in this commission to send men into the world. And we took a look at the book of Romans, chapter 10, verses 13 through 15. How are they going to call on the name of the Lord unless they believe? And how can they believe unless they hear? And how can they hear without a preacher? And how can they be preached except they are? They are sent. And we even looked at Isaiah chapter 52 about the beautiful feet of those messengers that were sent from the battlefield back to the city and pronounced victory is won. Thy, our God, does reign. Now we've noted here in this commission that although it is spoken directly to the eleven, we can, as a church, take this unto ourselves, that the apostles themselves delivered to the church, not any individual, but to the church, this commission. And so when we want to look at how this commission is being seen and fulfilled in the church, we rightly take our Bibles and we turn to the epistles to see how this is being worked out. We can definitely see the pattern of it in the book of Acts. But the book of Acts in many ways is a transitional book. But what we have in the epistles is our marching orders, as it were, 
to know how the Lord is working in the church today. And I had made mention before that really the commission is a commission to start churches. And churches begat churches. We reproduce after our own kind. And of course, if you think about our program today, meaning the program in Christianity Today, this is exactly how it works. God lays His hand on men and women, and they go either in a support role or as in a herald themselves, and they go sent from local New Testament assemblies through various different types of means, but sent by those churches into all the nations, and they are to preach to start local New Testament churches of disciples that the Holy Spirit gathers as they give the content of that message. Now tonight, we're going to be looking at several passages of Scripture because what we want to look for in the epistles is actually places where this commission is repeated or hinted at. And of course, I think that if we all just stopped and we thought about the epistles, really find very little in the epistles where Paul's writing back and exhorting the churches to be evangelistic. So just think about that. Paul never takes a chapter and says, now, do you remember the commission? Go therefore into all the world, preach the gospel. What he majors on is our walk, our adorning of the gospel, as it were. But that doesn't mean that there's nowhere in those epistles where this commission isn't hinted at. And I want to look at, I think I have five or six, I want to look at those just to see that there is this hint of a delegated commission that is behind these epistles. So first of all, let us turn to the book of Ephesians, chapter 4. Book of Ephesians, chapter 4. And as we look and we think of that chapter, and we think about, does the Lord still send men today? The answer to that, of course, is yes. He gives to the church gifts. And these gifts are listed for us in chapter 4 of Ephesians, in verse 11. And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastor-teachers. Now, of course, we don't have capital A apostles today. Some people see the word apostle as the sent one. And some people understand that word apostle to mean missionary. I don't see it that way, but some people do. We have prophets. We don't have prophets today. That office ceased with the giving of the New Testament. But we do have gifts given to the church of evangelists and pastor-teachers And it is, verse 12, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. And that would not only include building up local New Testament assemblies within themselves, but it certainly would include building up the body of Christ outside of ourselves. In other words, going to new geographical areas, which I think the word missionary would fall under that classification of evangelist. We also know that there are gifted men, pastor teachers, that are called by God, sent by God to preach. So let's turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Paul charges, Paul is a capital A apostle, and he charges Timothy, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, Timothy, 
preach the Word. And of course, Timothy's preaching of the Word (coughs) primarily dealt with this ministry at the church at Ephesus. Preach the Word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Why is Timothy to keep doing this? And why is it necessary to exhort him to do it with patience and instruction? Verse 3, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Now folks, this isn't lost people outside the church. Who are these that can't endure sound doctrine? These are people within the church. And this is why Timothy has to persevere in his preaching the word. But they want their ears tickled and they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside the myths. But you, Timothy, be sober in all things, endure hardship, specifically this type of hardship, do the work of a what? Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. And so we do have gifts given to the church in which hints of the commission are there. Preaching the word is within the, the boundaries of the commission. Evangelizing in a church. A pastor can't just assume that everybody in that congregation is what? is saved. And so in his preaching the word to the people, he also is to evangelize them. And of course, there is that evangelism that goes on outside a local New Testament assembly. So Christ in the commission sent those apostles and we do see Christ calling and sending men into the ministry locally, And into all the world. You have the church at Antioch in Acts chapter 13. Did they set aside men and send them into all the nations? They certainly did so. And the church is the one that commissioned them to do that. But we also see hints of the commission on every individual believer in our New Testament epistles. And I just want to go through a few of these. Not all of them are definitive, but they do at least hint at this commission going on in a local New Testament assembly that is binding or is laid upon every individual disciple in that church. So let's turn, first of all, to the book of 1 Corinthians. <coughs> 1 Corinthians <coughs> chapter 7. <coughs> 1 Corinthians chapter 7. <coughs> and this church had a lot of problems, didn't it? And Paul had to address those problems. And one of those problems was their perspective on marriage. And Paul had to address that. And we're just going to dip into this to see hints of the commission when we look at chapter 7, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 12. Paul is addressing a situation of a marriage in which one of the members, one of the spouses of that marriage is not born again. They're not a disciple. 1 Corinthians 7.12 But to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother have a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband, and he consents to live with her, She must not send her husband away. Now why is Paul saying this? Verse 14. 
For the unbelieving husband is what? Sanctified through his wife. And the unbelieving wife is sanctified through through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy, meaning they are sanctified, set apart. Verse 15. (coughs) Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or the sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. Now no verse 16. But how do you know, O wife, whether you will what? Save your husband. Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? What we know here from this passage, and I'm not addressing the situation here, but what we know here is that when Paul says in verse 14, that the unbelieving husband is sanctified through the wife, what he is meaning is, is that that wife's presence in that marriage can have a saving effect upon that unbelieving husband. How would that happen? Well, certainly it would happen by her adorning the gospel of Christ, living it out. But folks, how are people saved? Through hearing. In other words, the believing wife would give the gospel to her unbelieving husband. And God purposely has that husband, as it were, in that marriage, in a sanctifying relationship set apart for both the hearing of the gospel and the living out of the gospel in his wife's life. Everybody see that? And that is a hint of the, God, of the commission, isn't it? To go to all the nations. Here the nation <laughs> happens to be her husband. And give them purposefully the gospel so that they might be made <clears throat> a disciple. So here every believer This isn't someone specifically called into the ministry, but every believer is to have a sanctifying influence for the gospel in their sphere of relationship. Everybody see that? Okay? Let's look at another one. Look in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. First Corinthians chapter 14. And as we're going through here, I'm thinking of other passages that I didn't include that I could have included. So this isn't exhaustive, but this is showing you that there are hints of the commission here within the local New Testament assemblies that is laid upon every individual disciple within that congregation. 1 Corinthians 14, look down at verse 23. Therefore, if the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues or a different language, and ungifted men or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are mad? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, and the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. And what I have down here in my notes is, what you have here is every believer inviting. Now, of course, that unbeliever could have showed up at the services all on their own, could they? But they also could have showed up because a believer in that congregation is witnessing and confessing Christ. 
invited them, told them about Christ, told them about the meeting, and lo and behold, they what? They show up. And if they showed up and everybody in that congregation is all speaking different languages and trying to get the platform, he would say, well, you're crazy, you're insane. But if you come in and there is a single language and there is preaching that is going on, that preaching has the ability to disclose the hearts of that one that was invited and they might fall on their face and say, God is here and be what? And be saved. So here, just looking at these two passages, we have every believer being a sanctifying influence and their relationship influence for the gospel. And we have every believer inviting. Now let's turn to the book of 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. So every believer is to be inviting. Every believer is to have a sanctifying influence in their relationships of life. And here what we have is every believer echoing the gospel. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 8. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you. Not only in Macedonia and the Kai, but also in every place, your faith toward God has gone forth so that we have no need to say anything. What were they sounding forth? <clears throat> they were sounding forth the gospel. Look at what the gospel did in our lives. Look at what the gospel can do in your life. Well, what did that look like? <clears throat> Verses 9 and 10. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven whom He raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us or saves us from the wrath to come. Did that church echo that message? They did echo that message. <clears throat> it just wasn't the pastor teachers. It just wasn't the evangelist. It was every believer has this commission laid upon them to be a sanctifying influence, to be inviting, <clears throat> and to be echoing the gospel in their sphere of influence. Now let's turn, just turn back a few pages to Romans chapter 10. <clears throat> Romans chapter 10 <clears throat> and verse 9. <clears throat> Paul's giving the word of faith <clears throat> that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. What are the ingredients? One, you have to believe in your heart. Everybody see that? And then you have to confess with your mouth that Jesus is who? He is Lord. He is God in human flesh. And here the emphasis is on the word confess. In the context of Romans 10, the confession is, whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. They believe in their heart. <clears throat> what comes out of their mouth? Lord, deliver me. And people who do that are saved. Now keep that in mind and let's go back to Matthew. And go back to Matthew chapter 10. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 10. Now this is an interesting passage because there is a portion of this passage that is applicable only for these 12 disciples that Jesus sends out. There is also a portion of this passage that is transitional. 
Some of it might be applicable to the apostles. Some of it might be applicable to all believers. But beginning in verse 24 and following, he is speaking to all disciples. And you'll see that in verse 24. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave among his, above his master. He tells us, verse 26, do not fear. And that really is our problem, isn't it? We fear. We fear suffering. We fear reproach. We feel persecution. We fear what people will say to us. Verse 26, don't fear. Verse 28, don't fear. Verse 31, don't fear. And here we have verses 32 and verse 33 that is speaking to every disciple. Therefore, everyone who confesses me, next two words, before men. Everybody see that? Jesus is expecting every disciple to confess him before men. Everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a man's enemies will be the members of his own what? His own household. So folks, we can start right here. Every believer is to confess Christ. And it begins in their own household. Everybody see that? This is where it begins. It begins in your own family. And then it expands itself to other members of the family. Aunts, uncles, in-laws. And there is a strong possibility that some members of that family will turn and not welcome your message. They'll become your what? Your enemy. Don't fear. Don't fear. Don't fear to do this. But Jesus in verse 32 just says, not your family, but before men. Wherever you are. Don't fear to do this. <clears throat> so every believer is to have a life that is a sanctifying influence in their relationships. Every believer is to be inviting. Every believer is to be echoing. Every believer is to be confessing Christ. Even the dearest of relationships, we are to be confessing Him. And then I want to turn lastly to the book of 1 Peter. <clears throat> 1 Peter <clears throat> is written by a man <clears throat> who did fear to confess Christ, didn't he? And it's written by a man who actually denied Christ three times before men. And Peter, by His grace, repented of that. And Jesus, by His mercies, received him and forgave him. And on that first day of Pentecost, Peter himself was the one who stood up before all those men <coughs> and preached Christ. And here we have a book. We have an inspired book that he has written. And in 1 Peter chapter 3, <coughs> Peter is going to pick up <clears throat> what Jesus has spoken in Matthew chapter 10. 1 
1 Peter 3, verse 13. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. Isn't that what our Lord said? Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely. Verse 14, And do not fear. Isn't that what our Lord said in Matthew chapter 10? Don't fear their intimidation. And do not be troubled. But, now folks, here's what we're supposed to do in our fears. Verse 15, We are to sanctify Christ as what? Lord in our hearts. They're not Lord. Christ is Lord. We're to sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts. Now note this. Always being ready to make a defense to who? Everyone who asked you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. So brethren, here we have hints of the commission of the proclamation of the Gospel to be going with purpose. How so? Well, going with purpose, inviting. Going with a purpose of being a sanctifying influence in your relationships. Going with the purpose of confessing Christ. Going with the purpose of echoing the Gospel. And going with the purpose of defending the Gospel. Being able to make an apologia, a defense, for what you believe. And folks, if we're living out the Gospel and we're doing these things, you're going to have plenty of opportunity to make a defense because people will come and confront you. They'll say things like, how do you know you're right? Opportunity for a defense, right? They'll say, how do you know that yours is the true God? Opportunity for a defense. But they're not going to ask you those questions unless you're opening your mouth and giving them the Gospel. And so we have hints of this. And then our last passage is also here in 1 Peter. <clears throat> and I want you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 2 to a beautiful passage. And as I was reviewing this and meditating on it, I almost wanted to stop and just preach a whole message on this. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you, that is believers, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that... Everybody see that purpose statement. So that you may... What? Proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Every believer should be proclaiming the excellencies of Christ. Isn't He excellent? Folks, hasn't He loved you by teaching you so many things about Himself that are marvelous? Glorious. You have basted in His light. You have had His own instruction by the Holy Spirit. You have had Him illumine your understanding. You have actually asked Him and said, Lord, would You give me an understanding of a passage? And it could be days, it could be weeks, it could even be years. But then, boom, the light goes off and you understand that passage. You have come to understand that you are a chosen race. 
He has called you into fellowship with His dear Son. That you are a royal priesthood. You are a kingly priest. You have been created to be a people of worship. And you are God's own possession. He has redeemed you. He has purchased you. And He is indwelling you by the Holy Spirit of God. What a gift. And the gift of gifts above all gifts, verse 10, for you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Folks, many of us, those of us that were not raised in church, I was not seeking for God. I was not going around looking for Him. I did not pray and say, Lord, really show me Yourself. I'm living my own life, walking by my darkened imaginations, coming to my own conclusions, walking according to the course of this world. And all of a sudden, I find myself in a vacation Bible school and I hear the Gospel for the first time. I didn't get saved. But something was planted. I go on my early teens, living my own life, becoming despondent, feeling the Ecclesiastes, the vanity of vanity upon my young life. And my best friend, who was a professing believer, invites me to a crusade. I go there. I hear the gospel again. Didn't get saved there. But did I hear? Again heard, watered in my soul. <clears throat> Some seven years later, I'm working at a job site. A man comes by my desk. I say, hey, what's happening, man? And he says, Jesus Christ. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden, all of what I had heard and all that I had responded to what I had heard came crashing in on my life. And my eyes were opened and my ears were opened to understand that this man who gave me the Gospel just did not know about Him. He knew Him. He was a disciple. And that drew me to Him. And I asked Him questions. I drilled Him. And I would go back from the answers. He would pull his Bible out of his desk and he would open that Bible and show me the answers. This was amazing. And the Lord was opening my eyes to actually understand what he was saying and what he was speaking to me. <clears throat> and I'm a lost man. And I would take those answers and I would go back to my buddies and say, did you know that the Bible says this? <clears throat> and they would say, oh, that's just a myth. And they would give me all these questions and I would go back to this man whose name was Al and I'd say, Al, here's some questions that I have for you. And he would make a defense for the Gospel of Christ. And then one night by myself, on a Friday night all alone, the Holy Spirit used all that proclamation all of that the Holy Spirit brought to the forefront of my mind. I bowed my knee to Him as my Lord and as my Savior. All of that because <clears throat> that man proclaimed to me the excellencies of Christ. He wasn't a preacher. He wasn't even a deacon or a Sunday school teacher. He had only been saved a few years himself. Not everything he told me was correct, come to find out later. But he gave me the kernel of the gospel. <laughs> Brethren, that's what we need to do. The commission has been delegated to the church. And in the church, God has given as gifts pastor teachers 
who are to teach and explain and expound even this commission in Matthew 28. They are to expound it accurately and thoroughly. And we as members of the body of Christ should sit back and look at that and be overwhelmed with the glory of this. The excellencies of this. And go out and tell other people. You don't have to wait for them to ask you. Not only are you to go out and confess and proclaim the excellence of Christ, you are to be a learner follower. The Gospel is to be working in your life. You are to be living it. (coughs) Folks not only want to hear you proclaim it, they want to see it's real. Now, many of them may become your enemies. But you only have about 7 billion other people that you could go to and talk to. Just keep confessing. Keep proclaiming. I mean, folks, after all, Jesus Christ has shown us divine mercy. Hasn't He? Should we not show divine mercy to others? And really, to some measure, to some degree, if we don't do that, what we're showing the world is our own mini version of the world's own self-centeredness and fear. I have had many people reject the Gospel. But I've also had some receive it. And what a gift that is. Every Logo New Testament church possesses disciples. You as a Christian, as a disciple, have been given as a gift to this local New Testament assembly. Maximize your gifts. Maximize your gifts. Some churches are given more gifts than others. The Corinthian church had evidently all the gifts. Some churches have more influence than other churches. A local New Testament church that is situated in a small village of a thousand residents will not have perhaps the same gifts and influence as a church in a larger metropolitan area. But are they a church? And are they gifted? And are they gathered? And they are to be that salt and light in their local locality. Every locality needs a New Testament church. And folks, here's where the problem lies at, and I've experienced this myself. Whether a church is big or whether a church is small, whether they have been given many disciples or few disciples, they all should maximize their giftedness. And neither church should look at any other church with envy or contempt. Do we understand that? Thank God for bigger churches. We need them. And thank God for smaller churches. We need them too. Amen? Don't get hung up as I was hung up in my early years of ministry. And the Lord just having, keeps having to weed this out of my soul. 
that the only successful pastor or the only successful believer is something that does something big. The commission says, here's success. Go with purpose to make disciples. And those who are made disciples, whatever local church you are, big or small, baptize them. And teach them to observe all that I have commanded. Folks, if that commission is accomplished, it's successful. Whether there's few or many. Every member not only has every church been given disciples as gifts from Christ, but every member (coughs) has been gifted. You should maximize your giftedness. In the first place, you should do it within the local New Testament church that God has placed you. But you should also maximize it for those outside of that local New Testament church. With the utilization of your gift for the purpose of making disciples. For instance, if you have a gift of mercy, and one of the members of our church is in the hospital, should you show them mercy? Yes. But folks, would it not make sense also to maximize that gift of mercy by making opportunities with your neighbors to show them mercy? Perhaps you have the gift of hospitality. Use it for Christ's church, but also use it to make opportunities to show hospitality to your neighbors for the purpose of making disciples. And if you have the gift of teaching, then make opportunities to teach, not just within a local New Testament assembly, but even outside. Folks, doesn't that make sense? But don't do this. Don't maximize your giftedness. And if you see someone else not using that gift to your particular level of burden, don't look down on them. Just maximize your gift. Now we all should show mercy, amen? But there are those who have the gift of mercy. We have a lady who's not with us anymore. And if you would mention her name to me, I would say, Mercy. (laughs) Right there. And she utilized that gift greatly within the church, but also utilized it outside the church. The danger is, is that we think every disciple ought to have the same particular gift and burden that we have. That's not the way the body works. But whatever that gift is, maximize it. Going with purpose. The purpose to win, to make disciples. Not after yourself. There are people out there that do that. They're trying to get people to agree with their opinions, to follow what they're doing. You're going with a purpose to make disciples of who? Christ. You're going with the purpose not to win them over as friends. You certainly can't have lost people as friends, but having lost people as friends is for the purpose of winning them to Christ. In fact, Jesus says you probably aren't going to have many lost people as friends. And certainly, we're not to be going with the purpose of making disciples so that if we make some, it makes our own self-worth greater in our own eyes. I went to a conference one time and they 
paraded across the platform <clears throat> the soul winners. And each one came up to the mic and said, in the last three months, I've won so many. Next one came, I won so many. Next one, I so many. And the emphasis of the conference is, was, is that somehow you're more worthy to God. We're not worthy to God in any fashion. Christ has made us worthy. No, we're going with a purpose of making them a disciple of Christ. And how would we know that? They would be converted. They would identify with a local New Testament assembly, not an apostate church, but a local New Testament assembly by baptism. And they would set themselves as a learner follower so that they might learn to observe all that Jesus commanded. And if we're doing that, or attempting to do that, then brethren, we are being successful. We're being faithful. Regardless of the results. So therefore, the conclusion of this message is those apostles by His grace were sent to all the nations. They were sent directly by the voice and the person of the risen Christ. They conveyed this commission to not an individual, but to local New Testament assemblies. Those local New Testament assemblies will have gifted men or men as gifts. Evangelist, pastor, teacher. They've been called by God. There will be individual disciples and members of that local New Testament assembly. They are to be inviting others. They are to be having a sanctifying influence in their lives. They are to be confessing Christ they are to be echoing the gospel. They are to be defending the faith in light of contradiction. <clears throat> and they are to be proclaiming <coughs> the excellencies of Christ. And we as a local New Testament church having been given this commission through the Scripture by the apostles are to do this locally. And if God, by His grace, would call someone to the nations from our assembly, then we would have the blessing of having an individual sent from this, from this local congregation to all the nations for the glory of God. And brethren, the Lord is with us in doing this. Let's pray.